So we are continuing our series in Galatians. We're at the beginning of chapter 5. We'll be reading the first six verses this morning. So let us give our attention to God's perfect word. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray again uh, for myself and for them uh, that, Lord, your spirit would move in all of us uh, for our good and your glory. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm sure many of you have been to weddings in your life and seen other people getting married. And I think that basically they're all somewhat similar. Really, regardless of the character of the people, they all look nice, they're all smiling, everything's great. But we know that's not the, the, the people aren't the same. I've had this, I'm aware of this many times, that um, where um, sometimes a woman will be marrying a wicked man. He looks nice, he's smiling, and then a woman can be marrying a very godly man. And there's not a lot of difference on the wedding day, but you fast forward and they look vastly different. Are you aware of this? Have you known people like this? I've known a number of people like this, sadly. And that what started as something great a few years in, you have um, one who is withering uh, several years later. The other is blossoming, right? One is withering under the dominion of an evil husband. The other is blossoming. So I don't know if you can picture people like that. But you think about the bride, if only she could have known, or if only she could have known in the beginning what she was getting herself into. This is what Paul is doing in this passage. Right? Paul is trying to fast forward. He's saying, do not betroth yourself to the law. He's trying to help them look down the road and see what that means, the implications of that. Look at page 7. You'll see the outline. It says, what difference does the, object, does the object of your faith make? Now, kids, do you know what the object of your faith is? You might not. Let me help you, okay? The object of your faith means the thing you're trusting in, the object that you're putting your faith or trust into. Let me tell you a story to illustrate this. When I was in high school, I went with my mom and my brother to a um, food court at the mall. Okay, so there we are sitting in the middle of the food court, eating our lunch, money, our business, and all of a sudden, the chair I'm sitting in, the back leg breaks off. And I go plummeting to the floor, the entire place, you know what happens, they all stare at me. I was so embarrassed. So the object of my faith, that chair, was not very strong. My mom had a good chair, my brother had a good chair, but the object of my faith was very weak. Do do you following? Many people will say, it doesn't matter what religion you believe in. They're all the same, just as long as you have faith. But as you saw from my chair, 
It does matter. The object of your faith makes all the difference in the world. Okay, so look there, we're answering that. What difference does the object of your faith make? Three answers from the passage. Faith in Christ, what does that result in? It sets you free from sin and death and the devil. Secondly, faith in works, in contrast, enslaves you to the law and cuts off grace. And then third, faith in Christ results in hope and love. So we're like a fork in the road. So we're going to look at the bad option, and then we're going to look at twice the good option. Verse 1, and then the end of the passage. So points 1 and 3. So that's kind of how we've laid this out. As the passage is, we're just going to follow the passage as we always do. All right, look at verse 1 again. So this first point, faith in Christ sets you free from three things, at least, sin, death, and the devil. Verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When you hear the word freedom, what do you think? Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from oppressive social structures, right? We're actually remembering this weekend, I meant to say at the beginning of the service, our veterans, we're very thankful uh, for all of you and the freedom that we enjoy because people sacrificed. Americans, freedom is one of the things we hold most dear. Isn't that true? But what in the world are we talking about? What, apart from just the big freedom that we're not oppressed by some other government, what does that personally look like for you? What freedom are you holding on to? I think for many people, it just means leave me alone and let me do what I want. That's their actual definition of freedom. Is that what Paul is talking about? For freedom, Christ has set us free. And so this morning, as we begin and look at this first verse, I want to ask you, do you enjoy the freedom God has won for you? Would you characterize your life as a life of freedom? I hope by the end, you will do so more, that I will have convinced you from Scripture that there's things you are free from. There's three particular I want to focus on. Sin, death, and the devil. How does faith in Christ set you free from sin? If you were to read Romans 6, it says we're all slaves of sin. Well, we were before Christ. So we used to be a slave to sin. We could not resist sin. Okay, so some of you in your mind might be connecting and saying, actually, I know some non-Christians who actually have made great changes in their lives. They, uh, they were um, overweight. They drank too much. They smoked too much, whatever, right? And they changed. They stopped smoking. They stopped drinking. They weren't Christians. How could they resist these sins, excesses? Well, what they do is they actually pin one sin against another sin. They use their pride to oppose their drinking habit, right? And they don't, they're, they're tired of the shame they feel. And so does that make sense? You can actually use one sin and target against another, but you actually are, are no more holier. It's all just external stuff. This freedom is talking about something much deeper. Christ actually breaks us free from a bondage of sin. Also shame and guilt, but let's first talk about the bondage. That you don't have to, if you're a Christian, you don't have to sin anymore. God has put his spirit in you, and it's still hard, and still a process, but you actually now are not a slave to sin the way you once were. That is a huge freedom. If you became a Christian as an adult, you remember well what it was to live a life in bondage to do even the things you didn't want to do. Okay, so that's the first. The second half is the shame that comes with it. If you're a Christian, you can say with Romans 8.1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So not only are you set free to have to sin, you're also set free from the shame that comes with the sin. Why is that? Because Jesus paid for it, right? So though you don't have to keep sinning, you're now set free that the shame of it is also not oppressive to you. Okay, so that's the sin. What about death? Did you know that death is not normal? Death is not normal. God did not create humans to die. We're so used to death, we don't even think about that, do we? Humans were not created to die. Sin entered the world because of, I mean, death entered the world because of sin. Right? When Adam and Eve sinned, death entered. There was no death before that. Hebrews 9.27 says, not only physical death, but also permanent death or eternal death, right? Going to hell. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So after physical death, God gives people what they want. People that wanted a life free from God, he gives it to them. They just didn't realize the only place you can be free from God is hell in the lake of fire. He gives them what they want. But if you're a Christian, you don't have to fear that. Why is that? Again, because Jesus took death for you. Right? So in union with Christ, we've talked about this a lot in this series, union with Christ, you're connected with Jesus. So when he died and he rose again, you too, when you die, will not be the end but the beginning. You will rise again to an eternity with him. You don't have to fear death. This is a wonderful thing. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear death. That is a wonderful gift of freedom. You don't have to fear death. The third thing, third freedom that Scripture speaks of is the devil. This is Hebrews chapter 2. It says that through death, Christ might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The devil's basically made everyone a slave. But Christ has set you free. That you don't have to fear Satan anymore. Is he greater than us? Yes. But Scripture says he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So we don't have to fear him. 2 Timothy 2.26, I like this verse. It says that they may come to their senses, it's talking about non-Christians, and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You know that Satan has captured every single person on this planet who's not a Christian? They're in bondage to him. He is not good to those under his control. But Christ has set you free from that. So look again at this verse. It says, for, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. We're studying through Colossians in Sunday school. Colossians 1.13 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. If you are a Christian, you are really free from sin, both the bondage to it and the shame from it, and death, the fear of it, and Satan, he is no longer our captain, our master. That's really good news. And so what he's doing is he's reminding them of, hey, this is all that you have in Christ. Right? To be married to Christ, this is what it looks like. You have all these freedoms. But look, verse 1 says something else. And do not submit again 
to the yoke of slavery. So what's that? That brings us to our second point. What is this yoke of slavery? So that's option one. One leads to a lot of freedom. If you're married to Christ, faith and works, if that's the object of your faith, it enslaves you to the law and cuts off grace. Look at verse 2. Paul's very emphatic. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's what the Judaizers wanted. Remember, they came from Jerusalem to the Galatian church, and they said, be circumcised and start following Jewish laws. Add it on to Christ. Your life will be so much better. That's what they're saying. And Paul's saying, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's a really big statement. He said something similar in chapter 2. He said, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That Christ died for, it was a waste. He had no need to die. If you can do it on your own, what need do you have of Christ? So this is a similar idea. Christ would be of no advantage to you. He can no longer do us any good. Remember the example I gave at the beginning of two women? One who marries a wicked man and one who marries, let me make that situation even worse. Okay, so take the woman who's engaged to the godly man. And she decides she would be better off leaving him and going and marrying the wicked man. Okay, that is really crazy. Imagine being her friend. And you're saying, you're out of your mind. If you leave the godly man and you go and marry this wicked man, the godly man will what? Be of no advantage to you. He can help you no more. That's exactly what this verse is saying. If you go and marry the law, if you make it your master and you betroth yourself to it, Christ can't help you anymore. You've now married yourself. You've bound yourself to this other husband. He's going to go on and explain it more. Look at verse 3. He says, I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep how much of the law? All of it. The whole law. The whole law. We've talked a lot about the covenant of works and covenant of grace. Remember that? Covenant of works gave to Adam and Eve. Just don't eat from that tree. Obey. Perfect obedience leads to eternal life. It still exists today. It is a, I say viable in quotes, it's a viable means to getting to heaven. If you never sin in your whole life and your parents were also perfect and their parents were perfect all the way up, you can go to heaven. Of course, that's not a viable option, but it was for Christ. So we have covenant of grace. Covenant of grace is you say, Jesus, who did fulfill the covenant of works, obeyed everything, I'm going to get his righteousness. He's going to take all my sin. Paul's saying you can't have it both ways. You can't be married to both men. You can't be married to the godly man and the wicked man. At the same time, you can't marry Jesus and also add the law. You can't do both. Martin Luther once told a great story, actually in his commentary on Galatians. A man in his day uh, named Arsenaeus. This is what he said. He's quoting, Although Arsenaeus has lived a long time in the greatest sanctity and self-denial, he still began to fear and grieve deeply when he sensed that death was not far off. When he was asked why he feared death, although he had spent his entire life in saintliness and has served God continually, he replied that he had indeed lived a blamelessly according to the judgment of men. This is the important part. According to the judgment of men, but that the judgment of God were different than the judgment of men. With his saintliness and 
asceticism, this man attained nothing except a fear and a horror of death. He's right. It's true. The judgments of God are different than the judgments of men. God doesn't grade on a curve. See, we all naturally judge with ourselves as the baseline. I'll prove it to you. When you're driving on the highway, just imagine driving on the highway, who's driving too fast? Everyone's driving faster than you are. Who's driving too slow? Everyone driving slower than you are. See, you are the baseline. You are the standard at which you're judging every other driver. Next time you're on the highway, you'll smile because it's true. You know, God's actually like that. God's just like you. He uses himself as the baseline. The only difference is he's perfect and you aren't. He has to use himself as the baseline. Arsenaeus, or however you say his name, was right. He got it. He was right. He said, I've, I've done, I've been better than any other guy. I've, I'm above the measures of men, but the judgments of God I'm worried about. Matthew 5, Jesus said himself, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a high standard. It was indeed right for Arsenaeus to be fearful. Look at the next verse. He gets even stronger in his language. You are, se- you are severed. That's right what it says. You are severed from Christ. Kids, that means cut off. Cut off from Christ. You who be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That's really strong language. Now, I do want to explain it theologically so you understand it. But before I do, I just want you to let it land on you. Paul meant to talk very strongly here. He's talking to the Galatian church, and he says, if you go and marry this other man, so to speak, the law, if you get circumcised and you start following it, you are stuck with him. You are stuck with that way of life. If you're going to get to heaven by obedience to the law, you're toast. You can't do it. You can't do it. You are severed from Christ. You are cut off from Christ. Now, what does he mean here? Can you lose your salvation? It's an obvious implication of this. No, he doesn't mean that. Okay, uh, kids, you get to draw. Grab something to draw with. Adults, you can do it too. This is a very complex diagram. Are you ready? All right, first, draw a big circle. All right, you draw in your circle. All right, that circle represents the visible church. I see you with my eyes. You're very visible. You're part of the visible church. Every church in all the world is the visible church. You put them all together. So inside that circle is everyone who's a member of any church in the whole world. Okay? All right, so my question for you is everyone inside that circle, all the members of all the churches of the world, are they all going to heaven? Nod your head yes or no. I see some no's, a good, a good number of them. But they're members of the visible church of Jesus Christ. They've professed faith in Christ. They have said a prayer. They've signed a card. They've walked an aisle. They've made some vows. And you're saying they aren't going to heaven. That's a big statement you're making. This is why. There's another, the second part of the diagram. Are you ready, kids? Okay, so inside your big circle, draw another one that's a dotted line. Smaller circle inside the big circle, dotted line. That is the invisible church, hence the dotted line. The invisible church are the actual people that Jesus has died for. The actual people that have had real genuine faith, 
have put their faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit has come and lived in them. All their sins are forgiven on the cross. So I ask the same question again. Are all those people going to heaven? Everyone inside your dotted line, every single person, are they going to heaven? Some are thinking and some are nodding yes. The right answer is yes. Because once your sins are paid for, they're paid for. There's nothing left for you to pay. How could you not go to heaven? Jesus paid for you. He, you've been union to Christ. You've been married to Christ. He even promises in John. In John 6, 39, he promises that he will lose nobody that the Father gave to him. He'll raise them all up at the last day. Man, if Jesus is holding on to you, he is not going to let go. But you remember, we have the visible church, and there's a difference. So what you have here is that space, the space between your two lines, is what Paul is talking about. You are severed from Christ. They thought they had Christ, but they didn't really. They thought they had grace. It was all around them, but they didn't. Children, every child that's in this church, please can have your attention for one moment. You are growing up in the church. Please be careful. This does not mean you get to go to heaven just because you're growing up in the church. You could end up being between those two spaces, and none of us wants you to be there. You cannot go to heaven by being a good little boy or a good little girl. You have to place your faith in Christ. You have to ask Jesus to pay for your sins. It's the only way to get to heaven. That's what makes that inner circle, the dotted line. So don't, and this is true for adults. This is what's happened in Galatia. They were tempted to be deceived. Yeah, you got Jesus, that's great, but you need to be a good little boy, a good little girl in Galatia. You need to follow a bunch of rules. This is what is part of being a good Christian. They claim the Judaizers did. But it's not so. This is a great danger. C.S. Lewis in his great book, Mere Christianity, almost at the end of it, second to last chapter, is titled, Nice People or New Men. Nice People or New Men. He says, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Kids, you could draw that. Can you draw a horse and a winged creature? This is what he's saying. He's saying to be a Christian is not just being a better horse, to run faster and, and, and obey, obey more rules and be good. It's like transforming into a winged creature, something of a completely different nature. That is what it is to be a Christian. Tim Keller said it well. He said, gospel transformation is different than moral reformation. Gospel transformation is different than moral reformation. A seminary professor once said, if you have an iron rod and that iron rod is bent, how do you get it straight again? Well, there's two ways. You can bend it back straight, but if you do so, you've weakened it. You bend it again and it'll probably snap. The other way is you put it in the fire and you heat it up till it's glowing red and then you slowly Slowly bend it straight. You haven't weakened it at all. See, that illustration illustrates what we're talking about today. You can either try real hard to be a better person, be a better wife, a mother, a husband, a father, or child. That's like bending back straight. It's not going to work. But rather, to become a Christian, like as C.S. Lewis said, to become like a winged creature, is to put, God puts us in the fire, and then he is the one 
who slowly, we're a part of it, but he's the one who's doing all the work, right? He's changing us. He's actually transforming us. I think it's a powerful illustration. It's very helpful. You can use it with your kids, parents, when you're disciplining them. This is not just try harder, kids. This is ask Jesus to put you in the fire and transform you. Saul had said, cut off from grace. Paul's pleading with the bride. Don't leave Christ for a wicked husband, the law. Circumcision is the first step to a miserable life of slavery. So now that we've looked at the bad fork, we turn back to look at the good fork again. The last few verses, this is our third and final point. Look at verses 5 and 6. Faith in Christ results in hope and love. Verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. So kids, you remember the object of your faith? You remember the story I told you of me in the food court? Right? Objects of faith matter. And so now we're back to Christ being the object of your faith. It makes all the difference. So unlike my chair, Jesus is like a chair that holds five tons. Right? It'll never break. Christ will never, ever let you down. He'll never fall from under you if you put your faith in him. Well, where does that leave you? Look at verse 5. Well, first you see who does it. It says, for through the Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one that's working in you. He's the one who puts you in the heat and is changing you. He'll do it your whole life. By faith in Christ, if you put five and six together. So he's the object of our faith. But look at the end of verse five. I like it. He says, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Do you have hope? Do you have hope? Hope is life-giving. Hopelessness is not. Do you have hope? Kids, are you looking forward to anything? Anything coming up in a couple months? Yes. Yes, indeed. Christmas is in a couple months. Are you excited about that? You have hope that it's actually going to come. And you'll start counting down the days. You'll ask your parents how many days till Christmas. And so what is he looking forward to? Look at verse 5 again. With the hope of righteousness. Is this righteousness that you worked by working real hard? No. Because the reality is, We're probably more not bent like this. We're probably bent more like this. We're put in the fire, and our whole lives, we maybe get this far. But then in the end, when you die, he does all the rest. You're glorified. You're made absolutely perfect. No more sin at all. No more shame, no more weakness, no more anything. That's worth looking forward to. That's better than Christmas, right, adults? Being done with my sins. Oh, I long for that day. That's his hope. So if, you're, if you betroth yourself, if you marry Christ, you get hope. You get a confidence. Not only is the Spirit working in me now, but he will finish the work that he began. Philippians 1.6. He will finish the work that he began. And you know what? I want to tell you the end of that story from Martin Luther's friend, Arsenus. He says this. He finally, that guy did realize what he must do to be saved Reading again from uh, Martin Luther, it, is nece- it was necessary that he, his friend, lose all his own righteousness, his godly life, and trust only in the mercy of God, saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, who suffered and was crucified, died and was for our sins. Do you see, he got a new object of his faith. He had horror and fear as a saintly man, trusting in himself 
And then he had hope and peace and joy. He shifted his weight onto Christ. The full, his full weight on Christ. That he could never be severed from Christ. Do you have any fear of that? Do you worry that you might be severed from Christ? Do you ever worry that you might not be in that inner dotted line? Hear this from Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. Great words. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That includes you. Includes you, right? How can it not? Everything, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so if you've placed your faith in Christ, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, how do you know you're in a fire? It gets warm, right? So if you feel yourself being transformed, not just reformation working real hard, but if you feel the Holy Spirit in you, changing you, not maybe not day by day, but year by year, you look back a year, two years, five years, can you see the hand of God on you? That he is actually changing you at your very core. That's one of the great assurances that you're a Christian, not that you're still bent. No, that's not. We're all still, we're all still a little messed up. But that God is actually in the process of changing us. This is a great assurance. And you can know, I cannot be torn away from Christ because he is holding on to me. Look at verse 6. There's even more good news. For in Christ Jesus, neither, now this is interesting, circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Well, that's ironic. The guy just spent four chapters talking about circumcision. And now he's going to say, it doesn't matter. What? Here's what he means. Look at the beginning of the verse. He says, in Christ Jesus. If you are union to Christ, it doesn't matter. If you're a, a saintly Jewish circumcised guy, or you're a messed up Gentile Galatian, it doesn't matter. If you're bound to Christ, those things aren't important anymore. Do you see his point? Now, is that applicable today? Absolutely. If you come to Christ and you grew up in a Christian home, and you've been a good kid your whole life, and you don't think you have that many sins, you, you have more than you realize, but you don't think so. Or you come to Christ just recently, and your life is a really big mess, and you're still mainly a big mess. It doesn't matter. If you are bound to Christ, it's the same difference. You're still married to the same person as Christ, and he is your righteousness. It's a great leveling. If only they understood that in Galatia. This is trying to convince them. And so I do as well. Try to convince you this morning. I hope you hear this passage. I hope you hear the words of Paul. They are the words of the Lord. Look how he ends that. He says, but only. So those things don't count for anything. But only faith working through love. You see, one of the trademarks of Christians is love. It's love. And it works really two directions. Not that your love saves you, but true faith, you're saved by true faith alone, but true faith never remains alone. You now have a new love for God. You actually want to be with him. You actually want to know him. You want to, now it's, I know it's not perfect all you're thinking like, some days I really don't. Well, that's because we're still fickle. You're still not, <laughs> in heaven you'll be fully sanctified. We aren't yet. But you sometimes feel, don't you? Don't you sometimes feel a love for God? That's new. And the, the more you love God, the more you'll trust him. This is true of people. The more you love them, the more you'll trust them. Your relationship grows. 
It's also true horizontally. Your love will grow toward each other, right? As you love the other believers, your faith will grow. He's saying that. Only faith working through love. Love is a key part of it. You know, it doesn't take love to just work real hard to change yourself. But when God is doing it, it produces a natural fruit of love. And then what did it say in verse 5? Hope. Hope and love. It's much better fruit than slavery and death, as we saw previously. All right, time to land the plane. As we wrap up, I want you to remember those two circles. The visible and the invisible church. Super helpful. You can use it for all kinds of things. It answers, it relates actually to baptism. That's a whole other sermon to explain that. But how do you know what circle you're in? Where is the weight? Where's your confidence in? Who, what are you sitting on? What chair are you sitting on? I hope you aren't sitting on the chair I was when I was in high school. Right? One that will fail. If your confidence is in yourself, you will eventually fail yourself. Paul was trying to help them look down the road. So I, this morning, try to help you look down the road. If you bind yourself to yourself and the law, it's not going to go well. Just like marrying a wicked man doesn't go well. Bind yourself to Christ. It leads to freedom. It leads to freedom. Christ is transforming you. Transforming you from a horse to a winged creature. As I close, hear these words. Isaiah 40, verse 30 and 31. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men will fall exhausted. But, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The object of your faith makes all the difference in the world. Does not mean life will be easy. But it means the Spirit will be in you, and it's a completely different, completely different thing. Oh, I long for every one of you that you would know this. And those that do have this, I pray that you would walk away, understand a little more of the freedom that you have. Enjoy the freedom that Christ has won for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Christ and that he's won way more freedom than any of us understand. Help us understand just a little of it. That we could enjoy it and not be tempted to run back to slavery, to want to bind ourselves to an evil man, an evil, a law that will only enslave us. Lord, I pray that these words of this passage would sink deep into all of our souls for our good. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.